Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 4, the very first book of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to be putting the verses up on the screen so that you can follow along. Although if you'd like to have one, there's actually a shelf in the back with just a truckload of them, and you take them. They are our gift to you today. Uh, We want anybody who needs access to the Word of God to have it. We have, I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but the last series that we just ended last week is tied inextricably with the one we start today. And back in the summer, we prayerfully were very, very intentional about that, about tying the the subjects of justice together with the subject of evangelism, which we begin this this coming Sunday. And and the reason we did that is because we want to answer this question over this fall season of 2019. When you strip everything else away, When you take away the pageantry, you take away the sound system, you take away all the programming and everything else that we do as a church, what exactly should God's people be doing? Now, if you want any number of answers to that question, just go to social media, right? People would love to give you their opinion about all the things that the church ought to be doing, especially people in the peanut gallery. I've learned that. Uh, It's always so encouraging to hear people who don't go to church talking about what churches ought to be doing that they're not and talking about what pastors ought to be doing that they're not. But what I'm talking about is we need to answer that question for ourselves. What should we be doing? Well, the last eight weeks, we've been answering one side of that question. The people of God should do justice. That speaks to the effect that we have on society as a whole. We need to be salt and light, and there needs to be a tangible benefit to our being in any community, any city, or any region, particularly the most vulnerable in a society, the people that everyone else has forgotten about, but God has not forgotten about them, and therefore neither should his people. That is that principle of justice. That's something that we should be about. Matthew 25 is in our Bibles, and it actually tells us that our salvation is evidenced in whether or not we stand for those that everyone else has forgotten about. And so for the last eight weeks, we've been talking about justice. We've now closed off that series, and we're beginning this series, Who's Your One?, to answer the other side of that question, because the church doesn't merely do justice. We must also communicate the spiritual roots of that justice. And so if Matthew 25 speaks to the tangible difference we should make. Matthew 28 speaks to the spiritual root of it all. Jesus said that you and I are to make disciples. That's what we're supposed to do. That command, by the way, is based on the authority of Jesus in verse 19 when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. It is furthermore confirmed by the fact that that it's opened up with a participle. If you have an English uh, translation of the Bible, likely is not. Uh, there's an error in the beginning part of verse 19 because what it is, what it reflects, is an imperative command: "Go therefore and make disciples." baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Actually, that word go is not an imperative command. It's a participle. And if it is rightly translated, it actually reads more like this. As you go, make disciples. So the the main thrust, the main focus, if you will, of that passage is in that imperative command. And the context according to the first part of the verse, just happens to be wherever you are. That means that when when it comes to evangelism, sharing your story, deciding who's your one, we're going to get into what that means here in just a little bit. When it comes to all those things, your calling is not to add something else to your schedule. Your calling is to be obedient to that command in whatever context you are found. And so here's the issue. Your life and mine needs to be consumed with the making of disciples. That leads us to a very hard question that I'll admit to you at the outset, doesn't have a very comforting answer. How are we doing with that? How are we doing? A recent Lifeway survey uh, less than a year ago said the following. It said that 79% of the unchurched, these are people who have no connection with the, the, 
the church at large in the West, many of those people would not even call themselves Christian, but they agreed with the following statement. I would listen to a friend tell me how to follow Jesus and consider what they had to say if I knew they loved me and I knew they were sincere. In other words, they're not just getting another notch on their belt. They're not just trying to make a project out of me. They genuinely love me as a friend. They're sharing this news with me because it's the greatest news in all of human history. They're concerned about my soul, not just my fulfillment in this life, but my eternal destiny and where I'm going to go. 79% of those not gathered with us or any other church to on this Sunday, on this Lord's Day, said, I would listen. 71% of them said, in my entire life, no one has ever told me how to follow Jesus. No one. But we have to consider that as we, as we begin this morning. That disobedience is actually reflected in the church as a whole. I'm not just talking about ours. In the church in the West, interestingly enough, not in South America, not in Africa, not in the Asian subcontinent, but here in North America... Today's church in the West, on average, has an 80 to 1 conversion ratio. Let me tell you what that means. It means for every one person who puts their faith in Christ as a result of that church's influence, it took 80 people in that congregation. That means 79 people were disobedient. That's what that means. 80 to 1. Here's another thing we know. The decline of the Western church, as well known as it is, I mean, just forget about Pew Research and Barna and all of the Christian organizations that are actually concerned about this. Just look at CNN. Look, look at any secular poll, and you can see the precipitous decline of the church in the West. But here's a, another little-known fact. Of the less than 15% of churches in America that are actually growing, only 1% of those churches, and let me do the math for you, that's .0015. That is one and a half one hundredths of one percent are actually growing in the way Jesus commanded them to grow, which means they're making disciples, they're penetrating lostness, they're going to people who are yet to know Jesus and telling them about Jesus and bringing them into the greatest family in the world based upon the greatest message in the world. The other 99% even of growing churches, the way they're growing is by just having a better show and siphoning off people from other congregations. We are not, by and large, in the West fishing for men. We are swapping aquariums. That's what we're doing. And yet, in the midst of all this, we could, we could spend all kinds of time just, just wearing the guilt of that. Alan Hirsch, great Australian missiologist, says that 80% of churches are after the same 20% of the population. And that, that percentage of the population is people that already go somewhere else. This is where we're at right now. And just fuels the consumerism. The one thing that Jesus told his followers to do is the one thing that 2,000 years later, at least in our own cultural context, we don't seem to be doing. And so something's not right about that. And so for the next several weeks, all the way up into Christmas, here's what we want to do. We want to spend our time trying to rectify that. Identify the problem, rectify the problem. And so we're going to start today with a really personal question uh, by way of, of word association. Let me ask you, what comes to your mind when I say the following words? Now, try not to express yourself either excitedly or, you know, if you hear something you don't particularly like it, try to fight your gag reflex. If for no other reason than some of your brothers and sisters will like the thing that you don't like. So what I'm illustrating here is we all have different impressions of different things, right? So when I say the phrase Bernie Sanders supporter... Just think, don't talk, don't speak. What comes to mind? When I say the word Trump supporter, what comes to mind? When I say the word vegan, crossfitter, Republican, right? we could throw, we could just keep throwing these things out, right? And, and everybody in this room, there's going to be, I would imagine, a variety of opinions about every single one of those phrases, isn't there? So let me ask you this. What comes to mind when you think of the word Christian? This, this really gets to the heart of what we think it means to be a follower of Jesus. What comes to mind when I say the word Christian? I'm sure you have an opinion. The broader culture does as well. In fact, my guess is if you went out on the streets of Shepherdstown to eat your lunch today, or if you're commuting to our campus here from Martinsburg or from maybe from Maryland or, the, or Northern Virginia, wherever you're going to go for lunch today, if you just took the time and asked 10 people that question, what is a Christian? My guess is you're going to get, I don't know, 14, 15 different opinions. 
they're going to have a different definition. Now, here's the interesting thing. While we and the culture are debating over the meaning of the word Christian, this may be something that surprises you. Jesus' first followers didn't even call themselves Christian. They didn't do it. They had another word for themselves. They never chose that name. You know where the word Christian came from? It came as a derogatory slur against followers of the way, those who had announced that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And we don't get to that label until we get to Acts chapter 11. It was theirs, Antioch, in fact, where they were first called Christians. They never assumed that identity for themselves. That identity was placed on them. Here's what they called themselves, disciples. That's what they call themselves. Now, don't get in an uproar. We're not about to ban the C word, all right? We're not doing that. You certainly can call yourself a Christian. That's not the argument I'm making. Here's the point I am making, though. You know how many times the word Christian occurs in the Bible? Three times. You know how many times the word disciple occurs in the Bible? 218 times. So if we're going to learn what it really means to follow Jesus, and we're going to base that on the written scriptures that he has left behind for us, we really, don't you agree, need to unpack and explore very deeply what this word disciple means. And that takes us to Matthew chapter 4. Read with me beginning in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We're going to see a lot, by the way, over the next several weeks of Peter and Andrew, because we learn an awful lot from their life example, both of what to do and what not to do. But, but I need to explain this scenario to you that's happening. If for no other reason than the first time I heard this story, I was a little bit younger than our daughter, Gracie, and she's 10 now. And so I was sitting in a Sunday school class and, and I can remember, I don't remember exactly the moment that I first heard it, but I have faint, vague memories of being that age and seeing something called a flannel graph. How many of you know what a flannel graph is, right? You take a piece of felt, you put other pieces of felt on it and it's characters, right? And you, you see the, the visual of the story through the characters. And, and what I'm about to tell you, I would not for a moment blame on my teachers. They were godly men and women who wanted the best for me. Let's just chalk it up to Joel's own spiritual immaturity when he was eight, okay? But I never got that story. I never understood it. It didn't make any sense to me. And, and the flannel graph, at least in my mind, made it worse. Uh, because what I saw was, was these guys that have a job that they're supposed to be doing. And they seem to be doing their job pretty well. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this guy that they've never met before, and he's wearing a white bathrobe and a purple Miss America sash, and he's got flowing hair like Fabio, just like, like he just stepped off the cover of a Nora Roberts novel. And he pulls an Obi-Wan Kenobi on them and says, follow me. And, and they just kind of like Igor and Frankenstein just went, yes, master. Yeah. I, if you teach children, don't be discouraged by that story. Just have your eyes open to the fact that when we're eight, we all think that way. All right. And, and we'll be grabbing the, 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 the really uh, important stuff along the way. And that's good. But that's the way I saw that story for the longest time. It made no sense until I began to understand what's actually happening in this story. So let me back up for a moment, give you the background of this, okay? When Jesus approaches these disciples, there's a particular cultural context that's 2,000 years removed from us that we need to understand. In those days, every Hebrew boy in the first century went to Hebrew school, all right? They went to Torah school. They were learning those first five books of the, the Hebrew scriptures, that part of our Bible that we so often call the Old Testament. And they were, they were learning Hebrew from the age of five all the way up until the age of 10, nearly every Jewish male was in school learning the Torah. All right, So they're learning the language because that's what this is our identity culturally, religiously as a people, and we want to keep that going. They're also learning the Word of God and how it applies. And then by the time they got to age 10, there was, if you will, a culling of the herd. All right, And the rabbis would pick and choose those that they believe had kind of risen to the top. About 20% of them would continue study from the age of 10 to the age of 17. The other 80% were not dishonored in any way. They would just go home and work under their fathers and develop a trade. And that's just kind of how it happened. And so from 10 to 17, you have 20% of the, the male Jewish community learning the scriptures. And then at 17, there's another culling of the herd, and it surrounded two questions, very important questions. The first one was this, do you feel called and led by God to pursue a vocation in religious studies? In other words, do you want to go on with this, or do you want to go back and 
maybe catch up with perhaps even your, your older brother who was sent home seven years earlier. And the second question was just as important. Can you find a rabbi who believes that too? See, in our individual mentality in America, we don't like to think like that. I have students at Anderson University where I teach in my home state, particularly those who are studying for ministry, and sometimes they take offense when I suggest that part and parcel of, a, of, of discerning a, a genuine call of God is to have the local church make a judgment call on that. Not that local churches call people. We don't. God does that. That's above our pay grade. But it is our responsibility to discern whether someone's been called. And I've had young men say to me, especially young men, Pastor, that's a very private thing or a personal thing. I said, well, of course it's personal. But it's not private. It's not private. And I'll prove it to you. Forget about what the Scriptures say, although the Scriptures say a lot about corporate accountability and the role of the local church. Let's just cast that aside for a moment and speak in really practical terms. If you stand up in front of a congregation and tell them you're called by God to do ministry, but you can't convince them that you're called by God to do ministry, you will never be a pastor because you can't pastor unless you have a people to pastor, right? So in the first century, this was the responsibility of the rabbis. And it might not surprise you to know those rabbis were really picky. Let me tell you why they were picky. I'm, a I'm teaching a philosophy class right now, and at the end of that term, I've got about 22 students in that class, I, it is highly likely that I will never see or hear from most of those students ever again, because that's how academics works in the Western world. But in the first century, it was not like that at all. In fact, if a rabbi chose you after you made yourself available to him, you didn't just sit in a classroom with him. You followed him everywhere. You mimicked everything he did. And so when the rabbis are looking for their cream of the crop, they're not just looking for academically smart people. They're asking the question, what's the kind of individual that will basically replace me? It's the person that can, can sit at my feet and over time they can actually mimic my mannerisms and the way that I answer particular questions and how I handle various situations. And, and in this day, the best compliment you could pay any disciple would be to, to utter this phrase to them. You have the dust of your rabbi all over you. It's a colloquial phrase that basically meant you're following that guy so closely that every time he steps in something, what's on the bottom of his sandal gets thrown backwards and up and, and it's all over you. This is how well you follow your rabbi. You're that close to him. And in the midst of all that, there's something else that all those Hebrew boys were aiming for, particularly if they made it beyond the age of 17. They were aiming for a level of authority that, that's actually encapsulated in this really cool Hebrew word that you're going to learn this morning. It's the word shmiha. All right? Look at your neighbor and say, shmiha. Oh, come on. That was weak. Shmiha. All right? Some of you, you haven't been a believer very long. We just recently baptized you. You're working on kind of getting rid of some profanity. Maybe you replace it with that. Shmiha, right? Let me tell you what shmiha means. It means authority. And it means more particularly a level of authority relative to the word of God. To our knowledge, there were only about 12 or so rabbis who were recognized in the first century as having this level of authority. We see two of them in the New Testament, Hillel and Gamaliel, masters of the Torah. And they were the ones who had the recognized spiritual authority to interpret these texts. And the process of becoming that kind of rabbi with that kind of reputation I'm not going to bore you with that because you got to eat lunch, but I will tell you, it probably won't surprise you, that was a really exclusive club, and it was really, really hard to get into. All right? So you got all that background? Think about all of that when you consider what Matthew records for us here. Jesus approaching a bunch of fishermen. Jesus, who is not unknown to them, because this is the same individual who at 12 years old sat in the temple making corrections to the interpretations of the PhDs of his day. The Jesus who had said, uh, and, and will continue to say throughout his public ministry, you have heard it said. I know there's been hundreds and even thousands of years of tradition that have taught you that this is what this means. You need to chuck all of that and go with me. I say unto you. Jesus doesn't look for shmiha. He assumes it. He assumes that he has it. He walks this earth very presumptuously, and they know that. So when this man who's been known to speak in these ways and operate in these ways comes to a bunch of guys who are fishermen, they're adults, and they're not rabbis, what does that tell you about them? It tells you that at some point in time, they got cut from the team. 
That's what it means. And there's no dishonor in being cut from the team. Even the rabbis have to eat. And so you need some fishermen. You need that. But when this man with that reputation comes to them and says, follow me, what other choice can you make but to simply lay down your nets and to do everything that these men did? Let me give you five principles here. By, just by way of introducing this subject of who's your one, you really can't find a one. You really can't share Jesus with the one until as a one, you are following Jesus. Some of you are discouraged because you wonder, I, can I really do that? Particularly when it comes to sharing your faith. I know how nervous people get when they talk about that. Even the, the idea of talking with somebody about your faith, particularly in a culture where we're actually encouraged to keep all of that to ourselves. And you might say, Pastor, I don't have the eloquence. I don't have the education. Some of my friends are going to ask hard questions. I don't know how to be. Let me encourage you today as we begin. Five principles. Here's the first one. Jesus, brothers and sisters, does not choose the best. He chooses the willing. He chooses the people who simply say yes. See, you can be the most educated guy in this room, gal in this room. You can be the most highly skilled in a particular area. But the real thing that Jesus is looking for is teachability. He's looking for somebody who will, in the tradition of first century rabbis and Talmud, their disciples, walk so closely behind him that what's on the bottom of his sandals hits you in the face. That's what he's looking for. And if you're willing to do that, Jesus can and Jesus will use you to do amazing things. Look again at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So again, think about that background we just discussed. I want you to just let the force of those words sink in. Guys that have already been cut have this man whose reputation they know well, and they hear him say, follow me. Jesus doesn't choose the best. Jesus chooses junior varsity boys and girls. This is what he did. And by the way, this is, this is confirmed throughout the rest of the scriptural witness that this is exactly the kind of thing God does. In fact, a few years later, Paul will write to the church at Corinth this is a church that I have a, a pastor colleague who preached through 1 Corinthians and he called it Christians Gone Wild. It was one of those crazy places. People didn't know what to do with their sex lives. Guys would come in and see communion and the only thing they saw was an open bar. There's a guy sitting proudly with his arm around his stepmother that he just slept with the night before. This is one holy jacked up congregation. Paul confronts the sin because God doesn't want you to stay in there. He wants you to be better than you are. And through Jesus, you can be. But on many, many, in many, many places in 1 Corinthians, Paul encourages the church at Corinth because he loves them and he knows they are precisely the kind of people that God will use. Look at what he says in the very first chapter in verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God's chosen you. God's chosen me. God chose the weak in this world to shame the strong. I mean, you think about this for a minute. Of all the places in the first century that Jesus could have gone, if you really want to go to the best of the best, there were places in the first century that you could do it. You want a repository of knowledge? There was a great library at Alexandria that had not burned up yet. You want to go to the scholars who wrote those books, who understand them? All of those people are in Egypt. Go down there. Do you want great philosophers? There's a whole host of them on top of Mars Hill in a city called Athens. Men who will determine the framework by which Western men and women will think for the next 1,500 years. All of them are in Athens. You want power? You want to be able to leverage and, and take over the world? Rome is the place to be. Anybody that wanted power, that's where they were. Think about that for a moment. The man who assumed Shmiha, the man who, who just presumptuously said, it is all about me, comes to this earth. He's picking out his disciples, those that are going to turn the world upside down and make the kind of difference that 2,000 years later you and I are still feeling. And he passes over Herodotus and Socrates and Julius Caesar. And he goes to a beach at Galilee and finds some rednecks. And he said, those are my boys. They're the ones I'm going to roll with. They're the ones I'm going to ride with because I'm going to get the glory out of that. Nobody's going to be able to look at their intelligence and blame it on that. Nobody's going to be, listen, this is all about him. Not a single rabbi among these people. I had a, a church planner friend of mine in New Orleans area, and he was telling me once he had a young lady and, a, and her husband 
uh, dear members of his church. And, and the young lady called him one night. She's in her maybe mid-20s. And she said, Pastor, I'm, a, I'm afraid maybe I've done something wrong. I want to make sure I'm okay here. And by the way, you, you should call your pastor. Don't, don't, don't go rogue. You really ought to check with, with us on some stuff. That it just, We're not here to keep anybody from doing anything, but we, we're here to guide. And so it was wise of her to call. Uh, but this, this ended up being a joyous call on the part of this church planner. She said, we, there's this couple that lives in the hallway, in the apartment across the hall from us, and we've just been loving them and trying to serve them. And where our opportunity has arisen, we've been able to talk about our faith. And we got home last night, and they were waiting for us. It was after 11 o'clock at night, and they invited us into their apartment, and they said, we, we've been reading the Gospels. All four of them we've read over the course of the last week, and we need to know what it means to follow Jesus. Now, let me ask you, are you ready for that kind of conversation? Over the next several weeks through our small groups, we're actually going to have some stations here on campus as well uh, to teach you to be ready to have that conversation. What does it mean to follow Jesus? That young lady said, well, I just told them what it meant, and they prayed, and they received Christ as their Lord and Savior, and, and were born again. And she said, after that experience, I looked at them, and I said, we're, we're going to be praying for you. You want to come to church with us this Sunday? And they said, yeah, but, but first, there's something else we got to take care of. While we were waiting on you guys to get home, we read this book called Acts. And we need to get baptized now. And there's a swimming pool in this apartment complex. And she said, we just took them down there. And there were probably half a dozen people. And, you know, it's New Orleans, so it's always summertime. There were probably half a dozen people laying around the pool. And so in, in front of those people, we talked about the gospel and what baptism means. And I baptized her and my husband baptized him. And pastor, I just want to make sure that's okay. And he said, it is absolutely okay. I am so thankful for your, your responsiveness to that and being sensitive to the Spirit. I'm just wondering what else I can do. And she said, well, it's interesting you bring that up, Pastor, because they are living together and they want to make that right too. Could you do their wedding? See, this is what happens when we just say yes. This is what happens when God says, will you follow me with the reputation he has, with us knowing the kind of power that is at our disposal? Should our response be any different than that of Peter and Andrew on the side of the beach there in Galilee? Jesus uses you, and he wants to do that. God wants to do that. He wants to use you to reach your family, to reach your coworkers. Stop making excuses that you're not able. Of course you're not. Neither am I. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. If we've got willing, teachable hearts, we can give you the resources necessary to move forward. But he doesn't need your ability he needs your obedience. God chooses not the best, but the willing. Number two, he chose us, not him. Not we him. And, and that should give you some confidence. Look at verse 19. He said to them, follow me. You notice they're on the side of the shore. They're, they're working their net, maybe even mending their nets from their last time out onto the lake. They're not expecting anybody to do anything like this. That's very different from the scenario I just described for you where the the, the, the Talmud, the disciple, would actually go after their rabbi and hope that he would pick them. No, the rabbi just walks right up, introduces himself, invites them into this, into this great adventure. You would choose the rabbi, the rabbi would have to choose you back. But in this scenario, the greatest rabbi who ever walked the face of the earth simply cuts through the first step and says, come on, I'm inviting all of you. Come, follow me. You know, sometimes motivation can be a good thing, especially when you get discouraged or if you get into a conversation with another individual and all of a sudden you feel like the water level is way above your head and I, I don't know what to do. Sometimes that motivation is a kick in the rear end, but many times that motivation is really, really encouraging to you. I've experienced both in my life. 20 plus years ago, we moved from our native South Carolina to Louisville, Kentucky. We moved into an apartment so that I could go to seminary. It was something we felt like God wanted us to do after a few years of me serving on a, on a church staff. And six weeks in, I was ready to quit. And my wife came home one day because she was working full time. I was in the MDiv program. That stands for Master of Divinity. She was in the PhD program. That stands for putting hubby through. That's what she was doing. She was working full time. And so she came home and I was laying on my back on the bed like this, just holding my head. And she said, are you okay? And I went, no, not really. I'm going to tell you what was tearing me up. It was Hebrew. Let me tell you something about Hebrew. It reads from right to left, which is just wrong. And it looks like a chicken walked across the page. 
or it did for me at least at that point, right? No disrespect to my, to my Jewish friends who may be listening right now, but that's just the way it looked to me. I was not, did not feel smart enough to learn this language. No, more, more so than that, I had another 12 hours of graduate level studies that I was not accustomed to. When your professor says you're going to read 2,000 pages between now and 16 weeks from now, and he's just one of five, and you're doing the math on that, which I'm not really good at anyway, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I can keep up with this. The water level is above my head. And the, really, the linchpin of all that was the Hebrew language. It was killing me. I had one other graduate student put his arm around me one day because I was doing this in the cafeteria. Like, I can't figure this out. And he was like, don't worry, brother. The drop-ad date has passed. And so one way or another, you're going to end this, right? And I, I, the light will come on at any time now. The light was still not on. And I was freaking out. I couldn't get this done. And so I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do this. So I told my wife that. I, I, I don't know. Maybe we made a mistake coming here. Maybe I should, uh, maybe we should just pack up and go home. I don't think I'm cut out for this. And my wife, whom I love and who loves me and who has, has in m most of our 25 years been just a huge encouragement to me, she looked back at me and very, very compassionately, she said, you mean you moved me 400 miles away from my family and you're going to quit after six weeks? I don't think so. Sometimes you need motivation like that, don't you? There's some crotchety men in the group right now going, that doesn't sound very much like submission. Listen. The Lord gave you your wife not to stroke your ego, big boy. He gave you your wife to make you more like Jesus. So get your head out of the sand, okay? So that's what, that's what happens. Sometimes you need that kind of, you know, get, get moving. But let me tell you the kind of motivation you've got here. When you feel like you're in over your head, some of you have already gotten in the conversation. One of our elders just shared with us uh, after his small group went through the three circles training that were provided. He said, I've had more gospel conversations in this week than I've had in all of the last year because he's just trusting the Lord to do what the Lord is going to do with it. That's all he's doing. And that's what you need to know. When you feel like you're in over your head, just remember, he chose you. My rabbi chose me. That should be encouraging to you. And he would remind his own disciples of this repeatedly in the Gospels. You have not chosen me. I have chosen you. You know, there's a lot of times even in my life I have felt in my marriage, and if Jesus was married to Amy, he'd do a better job of doing what needs to be done for her. If Jesus were fathering my children, he would know exactly how to solve this dilemma, how to deal with that rebellion, how to guide them into the next step of their life. If Jesus were at my job, he'd talk to my coworkers about himself a whole lot better than I could talk to them about him. But, you know, here's the thing. Jesus never promised that, did he? He never promised to be the spouse to your spouse. He never promised uh, to step, step in and do all those things. Here's what he promised. Look at Ephesians 2. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He promised to put you in the mix with the water over your head and do things through you that you never thought possible. That's what he's promised to do. Oftentimes I'm asked if I'll intervene in some situation, if I'll pray uh, for a family member, if I'll have a conversation with a work colleague. And I'm always happy to do that. I'm honored to do that. I love having those kinds of conversations. But, but sometimes I get in the middle of those kinds of requests, I get... Somebody will say something like this, Pastor, I just, I just wish you could have been there because I think you would have known exactly what to say. Well, in the first place, I'm not sure that's true because I don't know your friend. I don't know your coworker. I don't, I, as far as knowing exactly, I'm not sure that's true. But here's what I am sure of. You know who God decided should be in that place with that person? You. You. And he has chosen you for this task. Do you think for a minute that he will not honor Every act of faithfulness that you give him in that moment, Jesus has chosen you, not him. Here's the third principle. Our primary calling is to be with him. One of the things we're going to learn when we talk about sharing our faith is this isn't about numbers. This isn't about tally marks. This certainly isn't about taking your friends and family and loved ones and turning them into your evangelistic pet project. This is about souls that you care about and the primary way you do that is just by walking with Jesus yourself. Look at verse 19. Two very simple words. Follow me. You've got to be with 
Jesus, don't you? You can't follow him if you're not with him. You can't follow Jesus if you never talk to him. You can't, you can't, you can never be prayerless. All right. Christianity in the West largely is Jesus. Yeah, I'll, I'll pray when I need him to take the wheel in the words of that great theologian, Carrie Underwood. You've got to spend time with him. You've got to spend time in his word. You've got to spend time with his people and the gathered people of God. But think about this simple command. He doesn't tell them where, how, when. It's just who, isn't it? Follow me. And they were so enamored that this man with this reputation, which was true to his character, would ask them to do it. They didn't care where they went. They didn't care what they were asked to do. They just simply did it. Because if you're a disciple, your first assignment in mind is to become like him. Which means you soak in his word, you memorize his word. Because again, the primary goal is for someone to say of you and me what they said of the first century Talmud about their rabbis. The dust of your rabbi is all over you. You walk so close with Jesus, if it gets stuck to the bottom of his sandals, it ends up in your face. You are covered in his dust, covered in his influence. Is that your disposition? I want to follow so closely and so deliberately that that's what happens. There's a lot of outlets right here in your covenant family from our small groups to men's meetings and women's meetings and Bible studies. I actually just heard from Pastor Chris, we're going to be opening up another three circles training on Sunday morning right here because we've got people who want to get into that and we want to open up every single opportunity we can for them to do that. I didn't even say that at the nine o'clock because I didn't even know about it. But that's happening. Take advantage of those things. Get in his word. Get it inside until it and him dominates everything. Now here's the, probably the most challenging part of all this. It comes in principle number four. We have to leave it all. I want you to see two verses here. First, verse 20 immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now look at verse 22. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now the weight of that is enormous because those two things represented the most significant things in these men's lives. And I would imagine that 2,000 years later it's no different. Their career and their family. Jesus said, follow me. And they instinctively knew I know i got to give some stuff up for this. And so they laid those things down. You say, am I, am I, I got to leave my family? Probably not. Am I got to leave my career? I don't think so for most of you, although some of you might. That's not really the point. The principle of this is that Jesus takes precedence over your family. Jesus takes precedence over your career. That, that's what that means. Now, most of us are never going to feel the full weight of what that means because, again, due in large part to the men and women that we stood and that stood and we showed appreciation for them, we live in a free nation. And we don't live in a place where there are cultural pressures that force us in oftentimes to choose between Jesus and something else that is dear to us. I know those people. My wife knows those people in the Middle East, in the Asian subcontinent, men and women who are cut off from their families because they came to faith in Jesus and their mom, their dad, their grandparents said, we don't want you following that religion. We see that as an utter rejection of us as your family. And if you baptize, if you allow yourself to be baptized, you can never speak to us again. Yeah, we know people like that. We know people who suffer and if are discovered will be persecuted in prison, perhaps even put to death. It's one of the reasons, and I hope you'll hear my heart in this, that this preacher just doesn't have a whole lot of sympathy or patience for people that would leave a church over the color or comfort of the chairs or whether or not the air conditioning was working that day. These are the kinds of things that we're aware of. Most of us are never going to have to do that. But some of you might have to rethink some things. We're planting a couple of new churches this year into next year. We've got some satellite locations that are coming over the course of the next several years in Virginia and Maryland. Some of you may need to relocate some things. You might need to reorganize some things because God is calling you today to be a part of something in the future. Maybe it does mean relocation, selling one house and buying another one, reorienting your career, moving an office, changing jobs. We don't think like that much anymore. 
My friend Paul Fisk at Alathia in Harrisonburg, Virginia, he gets them early while they're still students at, at nearby James Madison University, and he trains them to think when the ink is not dry on your degree, the first thing you need to ask God is where do you want me to go? Not where's the most comfortable, not what's the most advantageous, but Lord, where do you want me? And then the first place you pick is not a place to work, but a church in which to do that work. That's the thinking of the New Testament. And so sometimes the Lord tells you to leave some of those things. Some of you are in front of me right now, you're in college, you're in high school, and you might have to make a hard decision at some point. God may be calling you to full-time service as a pastor or a, a missionary, and you're going to have to decide what's going to have sway over your life. Amy and I have a, a couple who are dear friends of ours, and we were in seminary together with them, and, and they uh, are missionaries to Southeast Asia, the, the Pacific Rim area there. And um, missionaries typically in this particular network, they do three years on the field full-time, and then they do a year stateside. That gives them a chance, number one, to share with the churches what God is doing in that part of the world, and secondly, just to get some rest, because it's hard work. And so they take a year, and they rest, and they recharge. And one of the things that most missionaries look forward to during that time is to reconnect with their extended family that if they have seen, they've only seen because the extended family flew to them. And this couple told us, we don't look forward to stateside assignment. They're like, why? They're because, because we know we're coming home, not to a welcome party, not to celebration of what God's doing. We're coming home to drama and vitriol because our parents are still mad at us because we took their grandchildren to a foreign country. Grandparents, are you listening to me right now? You do not want to stand in front of Jesus having done that. You don't. But you know, they had to make a choice in that moment. Like, we haven't seen them in three years. And I'm thinking, those air routes go both directions. Why don't they get on a plane? Come to you. They're retired. They're, they won't do it. They're mad at us. Some of you may have to make a decision one day. As, as Jesus is talking about here, you, you may have to leave a father. You might have to leave a mother, not because you hate them, not because you're being disrespectful, not because you don't have a desire to honor them, but because you have been put in a place where you're going to have to choose your loyalty between someone who gave birth to you and someone who died for you. What's it going to be? There's going to be a time when some of us are going to, call, are going to be called to make that decision clear. Who's going to have sway over my life, particularly if one party is telling me to be unfaithful to Jesus? And that's hard for us because in the 21st century, the whole Western church is pretty much in a what's in it for me mode. What do I get? Which means that churches, many of them, are full unconverted, unregenerate people always asking, what do I get? So that's, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? Well, not really, because Jesus never tells you what you get. In fact, one of the things we know about genuinely converted people is the first thing Jesus gives you is your own cross. It might cost you everything. You have to leave it all if necessary. But now here's the, here's the fifth principle. He commands us to spiritually reproduce. See, there's a reason he wants you to leave everything behind. Look at verse 19. I will make you fishers of men. You're doing a good job over there. You're feeding a lot of people, and, and as well as that, with your livelihood, you're feeding your own families. That's good. I got a higher level of fishermen that I'm going to call you to. The rescuing of souls. How do you know you're a disciple? By bearing exactly that kind of fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, you might have reason to ask yourself how closely you're following your rabbi. Is his dust really all over you? See, the, the, the primary goal for making disciples is just that, right? You've seen those memes all over social media that say you had one job. That This is what God calls us to. You have one job. Make disciples at an individual level at a local church level and as i said last week the western church in america can overcomplicate a two-car parade this is not hard but we think we got to have all these all these sophisticated systems and we got to hire a bunch of professionals and we got to do all of this and all that listen billy graham is one of my ministry heroes but he's dead and he's not coming back and jesus desire and jesus primary plan 
for making disciples is not large stadiums and evangelistic crusades. It's not passion plays. It's not Toby Mac concerts. It's not creation. Those things are fine. There's nothing wrong with those things. Unless we start to substitute those for the very thing that Jesus is calling us to do. In which case, those things become idols that we had better set on fire before God does. God's plan is you and it's me. I hate to break it to you, but right here in the tri-state area in 2019, God's plan for us is not this pulpit getting louder. It's not Easter pageants. It's not Christian concerts. It's you. It's not something that we're going to do and add to the schedule. It is someone. It's in particular the people that are right in front of me right now. God is calling you to this. By God's grace, we want you to work on that. We want you to set a goal. Over the next 12 months, I'm going to become a reproducing disciple. I'm not just going to walk closely with him and have his dust all over me. I'm going to walk so closely with him that someone could get behind me and catch some of that dust. A reproducing disciple. There's somebody on your mind right now. They're a relative. They're a loved one by some other relation. They're a co-worker, they're an extended family member. There's somebody on your mind right now. That's your one. They are yet to know Jesus. Their eternal destiny is at stake. And here's what we want to challenge you to do. Just make it your goal in the next 12 months to have shared the message of Jesus with that individual and then leave the results up to God. But you know what I think will be the results that God gives on that, on that front? I've had people say, man, I love it when we do baptisms here. I love doing baptisms here. Hey, we baptized hundreds of people here. I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm, most of the time, I'm the one in the tank doing it. I love doing it. But you know how I'm going to know we've arrived? When there's more of you in the tank than me. When you're up there with your one. And you put that person under the water symbolizing Jesus' death and resurrection and their own death to sin, and you bring them up as a matter of communicating their new life in Christ based upon his bodily resurrection, and you begin to disciple that individual. That's the goal we're looking for here. And so we're going to give you a tool to do that, the three circles tool that some of you have already been introduced to in your small groups. And we're going to see that it's not the only tool. It's not a tool that we tell you you have to use, but it's a really simple don't have to have a degree, don't have to know a lot except the, the main story of the gospel to be able to share succinctly with another person what it means to follow Jesus and connect that with the larger meta narrative of the gospel, which is Jesus, dead, crucified, risen, coming again. How do you communicate that message? My guess is that um, some people don't feel comfortable, they feel awkward. What we want to do in this training is actually make it less awkward for you. You say, well, I already got a tool. I'm already doing it. Praise the Lord. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't you, if, you, if it's working for you, if you're seeing people come, to the, come into the kingdom, you don't, need, you don't need this instrument. It's not about the instrument. If, on the other hand, you, you don't, you're not very effective at sharing your faith, you don't share your faith, but you really like to nitpick at stuff, I don't know if you know that, but I, I've met a lot of people in the church. They like to look at something like that and critique it to death dies the death of a thousand paper cuts because somebody, well, I don't like that. that. That seems canned and this seems this and this seems, okay, fine. What are you using? Nothing. Maybe you ought to stop critiquing. The issue might not be the instrument so much as your own disobedience. This is what we're looking at. For the sake of the people you know, in light of the fact that their eternal destiny is at stake. In, in the nearly four years that I've been honored to serve as your pastor, I, I have never, until just a few weeks from now, devoted an entire message to the subject of hell. But let me tell you, it's real. It's real. And eternity is in balance on this. So let me just ask you this. What would be the effect on the tri-state area, if the hundreds of people who call this church family home suddenly decided to take this seriously, what if each one of us decided to make our goal to bring just one, just one 
person to Christ next year. And again, I know what the Bible says about conversion. I can't save anybody. Neither can you. But here's the other thing the Bible teaches me. It teaches me that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that if I'll do this enough times with enough people, I'm going to see the word of God not return void. People are going to hear. Then they're going to believe. Then they're going to repent. Then they, like us, will begin to follow Jesus. And can you imagine the effect that that would have on the entire tri-state area? If we would just commit to being obedient. I, everybody in front of me, plus everybody at the earlier service is saying, I'm going to reach one individual. We could baptize. I'm, just gonna, I'm not even going to count on God saving them. I'm just going to share, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the results up to him. We, we wouldn't be able to drain this tub for a year. We'd baptize 500 people and not even work that hard. This is our calling. This is our calling. What are we waiting for? Here's my question as I close. Are you a disciple? I mean, maybe you never even really understood this until today. But hear me well, and let this final word today be an encouragement to you as we move through this series. The one who calmed a storm, who cast out demons, who, who healed diseases, who rose from the dead is saying to you the same thing he said to those boys on the beach in Galilee. Follow me. Follow me. How are you going to answer that call? How else could you answer it? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for an enormous opportunity. Forgive us, Lord, for those times when we've been ambivalent toward it. Uh, Lord, the, the one thing I know that our enemy wants to use in this moment is fear and fear of the awkwardness, fear of rejection, fear of a thousand other things. Lord, may all of that be overshadowed by the fact that the greatest rabbi who ever walked the earth now calls us to follow him and to be involved in this great enterprise of others submitting to his lordship. Lord, I pray for each person here that you would convict their hearts, that you would encourage them today to consider the possibilities if they will simply lay down their nets and do what those men did 2,000 years ago. Make us truly followers. Make us reproducing disciples. And Lord, for the glory of your name, may hundreds of people over these next 12 months know of Jesus and worship him as he deserves. And I ask this in his name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.